freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Eilee, Roxana Espos, and Pallas Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. In this special episode of Under the Tree, we talk with Helen Schiller, a legendary Chicago activist and organizer, at a book event held at the wondrous 57th Street Bookstore in Hyde Park, Chicago. Helen's activism over many decades is grounded in anti-racist politics and an international perspective and includes fights against police violence and for affordable housing, decent schools, and a city budget based on humane values. She also was an independent, that is, a non-machine voice on the Chicago City Council for 24 years. Helen's career raises fundamental issues and questions with some serious thought. For example, what's the relationship between a social movement and an electoral campaign or an electoral strategy? How do we walk on two legs toward fundamental change? On one leg, the mobilization of masses of people and fire from below, and the other leg, what we might call real politics, or the ability to get stuff done. I think that this is something that gets often confused in movement circles, that we sometimes think a campaign is the movement, and we lose sight of the fact that any successful campaign has to grow out of the movement, serve it, and be accountable to it. Let's go to the bookstore and talk to Helen Schiller. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us in this uh, super cozy space, uh, 57th Street Books. If you haven't been here before, uh, 57th Street is the sister store to the Seminary Co-op, which is just over on Woodlawn. Um, The co-op was founded in 1961 by a group of seminary students. Uh, It became a member-owned co-op, and then in 2019, we became the country's first not-for-profit bookstores whose mission is bookselling. So that mission recognizes bookstores as fundamental civic institutions, as spaces for informed populace to gather and to have events just like this one. Uh, 57th Street Books joined the family in the 80s, uh, so we're just about to celebrate our 40th birthday here. Um, Just a few housekeeping notes for tonight. We ask that everyone remain masked during the event. If you don't have a mask, there are masks in the front room. Uh, There will be time for audience questions, so if you have any questions at the end of the program, feel free to just raise a hand, uh, and we can get to you then. Um, And Helen will be signing after the event, so if you haven't picked up your copy or if you brought your copy with you, um, Helen will be signing in the back once we wrap up this evening. Um, And without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guests who likely need no introduction, but... uh, (laughs) Helen Schiller uh, was raised by migrant Jewish parents, radicalized by the anti-war and civil rights movements, and was in a collective of whites aligned with the Black Panther Party in Chicago. Beginning in 1987, Schiller was a radical Chicago alder person for 24 years. Um, She's also the author of the book, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, which is an incredible history of uptown of Chicago um, and a really, really useful tool for community organizing. Uh, Helen is joined in conversation by Bill Ayers, who is a distinguished professor of education and a senior university scholar at UIC since retired, uh, and founder of both the Small Schools Workshop and the Center for Youth and Society. He's taught courses in interpretive and qualitative research, oral history, creative nonfiction, urban school change, and teaching in the modern predicament. Ayers is the author of numerous books and articles. Uh, Tonight we have Demand the Impossible in the back as well. 
Uh, and he lives in Hyde Park, Chicago with Bernadine, his partner, comrade, friend, co-parent, grandparent, inspiration, co-author, <laughs> lover, and soulmate for close to half a century. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Helen. Wow. Just, uh, just one correction and then an amplification. It's more than half a century that we've been together. Um, not, not almost half a century, 52. And I'm still hoping it's going to work out, so we'll see. <laughs> Who would know? Anyway, um, it's great to be at 57th Street Books. I have longed and missed very deeply being together. Um, and I'm glad we can be together, and I hope we all stay safe. But... Um, I want to say two things before we start, and first is that 57th Street and Seminary Co-op are destinations, and they are public spaces, and I think it's hugely important when we gather here to remind ourselves that the public square is disappearing before our eyes. The, the public square is being erased, and that means when we find institutions like this, we have to support them, we have to embrace them, we have to make sure they'll be here tomorrow and for our kids and for our grandkids. So I encourage you to buy a book tonight. Um, most of you are regulars, many of you are regulars here, I know you, um, but I encourage you to buy this book, two copies, one for you and one for a holiday present. Uh, but if you're not inclined to buy this book, um, Buy Moby Dick and Helen will sign it. Um, but, but the point, as long as you promise to give a five-star review. <laughs> exactly. exactly. But the point being that we need to support the institutions that support us. And this is a public space where we can have, where we can face one another, I would say without masks, but even with masks, uh, authentically, and, and have real conversations about matters of real importance. So please buy a book before the night is over. Uh, second thing I want to say is that my comrade and colleague, Roxana Espos, is here. Um, we have a podcast called Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom, and we're taping this um, in part because we're going to amplify this conversation and hope that you'll f look for Under the Tree. Um, when I tell people our age that we have a podcast called Under the Tree. They say, where can I see it? Yeah. You don't see a podcast for those of you who don't know. You actually listen to it. But, um, but I urge you to, to check out Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. And Helen Schiller will be uh, part of our repertoire uh, in the weeks ahead. So without any further ado, um, Hel I'm so grateful that Helen has written this book and grateful to be here in conversation with you. Uh, we go back a long way in terms of overlapping commitments and struggles and campaigns. But Helen is an institution in Chicago. She served 24 years on the Chicago City Council as an independent. And to get through that and still be standing and smiling is uh, an extraordinary... Well, I'm smiling because I'm gone. Because <laughs> you're not there. Well, you know, you, you did some remarkable things there. And most of it, all of it, I think, is documented in this in this fine book um, but I think that I'd like to start um, by right today and then work backwards and talk a bit about the book I know that hell I know when we talked a week ago that you were on your way to Georgia mm -hmm. and so since most of us are feeling kind of sharp-edged about what just happened maybe you tell us a little bit about your trip to Georgia why you went what you did and how you're feeling about the outcome mm -hmm. Well, I went because I wanted to make sure that Warnock won. And I was with a friend, with Phoebe Helm, who is from the north side, so I don't know if you guys know, but she used to be the president of Truman College. And so we went, we knocked on 450 doors in three days in a, in, in a, in a northern suburb of Atlanta, suburb just north of Atlanta. It was the most, I mean, really, coming from Chicago, not really ever spending much time in the South, knowing Atlanta had its own history and was a little different. Even so, we were in um, we were in several working class communities. Uh, we were in an upper middle class community, and every community we were in was incredibly diverse. Nothing rare. Nothing. I mean, really, just incredibly diverse. It didn't matter where we were. Everybody was there. Um, also, there was. I don't know where, I mean, people, 
there were a lot of people that weren't home, but everyone who was home actually we had no problem talking to. It was the easiest canvas I've ever done. Hmm. Why is that? Um, do you think? Just I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it was there were so many different factors, and I don't know the area, right. um, and I don't know the the community. But um, you know, a lot of people we we canvassed for two days before the election, and then we did get out the vote stuff. But it was the same kind of canvas, mm -hmm. and. Um, and it was, you know, so I, I the first time, for most of my can early canvassing experience had nothing to do with technology. It was your call sheet. I mean, you know, you had your runner right. sheet and you signed it off and everything was plus, minus, and zero with your little notes, which I wrote a lot of, and, uh, you know, and all the stuff about going back and blah, blah, blah. This was, and, in be and then later into like the 2000s, I was always discouraged about the technology I got because it was, it was, counterproductive to doing a canvas this was incredibly organized huh. and we're i mean we would be out there and they would sync it update and say this is now a new version of what you're working on and it includes things that other people have been doing in your area well it was, we were two of us so they were updating each of us and we were working together you know mm -hmm. we'd one we'd take each side of the street but um so the technology actually was really helpful for a change, but I don't know that anyone ever looked back and looked at the notes that you right. wrote. And of course, we were at the last minute, so who cared? Right. But I was I was a little worried because on elect I was I didn't know how to read anything. Election day, where we were every time we st we worked in three different precincts on election day. We we fi finished through three different sets of stuff, and each time we went by the polling place. Uh, now what they were saying throughout the day was uh, throughout the whole time we were there was that. They expected, all the talking heads, they expected that all of the early votes, which were over, well over a million and a half, uh, were predominantly um, Democratic, and that they expected that the majority of votes coming in on Election Day were Republican, and there were no lines outside any of the polling places in the suburbs. I don't mm -hmm. know about, and the pictures on TV even always kept saying this was early voting, so I don't know what happened in the city either. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't know how to read that. And when we were getting, so we were watching the news returns. We I didn't we did we stayed at the hotel. We didn't go to the events. Um, we were watching the ho the the news returns, and I just I love. I, we kept switching around until we got to one of the stations that was showing you the comparisons with the previous with yeah. the primary. I mean with the with general the November, because. Yeah. Um, because that's the only way to have any kind of judgment. Mm -hmm. So when they brought up the county that we were in, and we saw that in that county, uh, Warnock was 62 or 63 percent consistently all the way through, and it was a little higher than what then uh, then in November we were like we we got a little calmer. I was like, mm -hmm. and you know because it started out, it started right. out with him very high because they they first we were all watching it right, and then it got really tight. So when it got really tight, I'm like looking very carefully at where they're talking about everything. But at some point, it became clear he had it regardless. Yeah. Started to go up, and I was finally relieved. But there was a few moments there where, um, and he came out to he came he was running around I guess in his bus. Um, greeting people working on election day. So he came to the Democratic Party headquarters that we were working out of in Gwyneth County, where mm -hmm. we were. And um, and so at lunchtime. And uh, it was, they, they actually covered it on the press. CNA took a pic, CN, CNN actually took a picture of everyone and Phoebe was in it. I was, I decided I was going to be a photographer, mm -hmm. actually. So I was uh, taking pictures. Um, so, you know, they went and, and that was, it was heartening to um you know just see how it was important it was important to the people who were doing work all day sure. but he was really good yeah. um he was very clear he wanted everyone to understand that it, the the election wasn't in the bag um that there was a lot of work this you know we had to keep working we couldn't just give up in the middle of the day and um but he was but the most i mean what really the most important thing he said for me at that moment was that his job was to represent and have heard ordinary people mm -hmm. and find solutions, which of course is one of my things. Yeah, so your I mantra. really totally right. appreciate it. Right. Yeah. But you know, one of the interesting things to me, and, and we do get caught up and we were caught up and very relieved at the outcome, and he seems like a really authentic and decent guy for his whole background yeah. speaks to some very good issues. But you've been an activist, an organizer, and a politician. And I'm interested in Georgia as well as right now naming this political moment. What is the relationship between movement building outside the electoral mm -hmm. world and electoral politics? We um, don't move forward without it. So without the without the mass movement. No, not at all. I mean, I think that um, and and you can actually we 
on, on uh, let me just decide, on, on Tuesday, we had planned to come back late later in the day on Tuesday in case they needed some work done on perfecting ballots and stuff like that. But they didn't need us. So we went to the museum instead. Nice. And, um, and I was really uh, struck by the way in which it, it's, you know, there's a museum campus there, for those of you who haven't been there. So this is... The, 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 the Civil and Human Rights uh, Museum is on the same campus as the Coca-Cola Museum. <laughs> and what's the other one? There's a, it's a third one. It's a sports one. And, um, and, it, and the thing about it is, is that that's kind of, it, it seemed to me that that was sort of the way Atlanta was. That all of the struggle that had gone on in Atlanta, that it was, it, it harkens to me what Harold used to say mm-hmm. about um, that he needed 20 years to have any kind of impact on institutional racism and institutional corruption. And I, I, I think it's important to start there in terms of these things that we're talking about are really prolonged struggles that require a huge amount of change in not just policy, but in implementation, which means we have to win over and change people's hearts and minds, mm-hmm. which, you know, internalize those changes. And that takes time. And that's something that has to be a constant process. And we don't do it overnight. And we really do it step by step. But also when you look at the dynamic between organizing and between um, elected elected office that the policymakers in any situation I don't care if it's a political one or in a college or in a university or any institution any department that the change only comes when people not only have the leadership and the guidelines and the policy for change but are going through a process that really also changes them and um, and and you can't do that unless there's a constant demand. Mm-hmm. And as an elected official, what I, you know, when I was an when I was an activist, and I would confront elected officials, I would say, "Just do it." They mm-hmm. said, "We don't have to, or whatever. You can't do this." Right. It's not. We'd say, "Just do it." As an elected official, people would say that to me, and I would go in my head, "Yeah, now how the hell do we do that?" Mm-hmm. And um, and 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 how do I explain that what I need? I mean, or that I can't just do it myself because people assume once you have an elected office, you can do anything. And in every level, you can do something, but usually it's way less than anyone expects of you. So it's really, so the political education and understanding of that's really important, but also having a sea to swim in is critical. Um, and I, I didn't really grasp this as well as I should have until someone asked me, Someone asked me to um, do a hearing, to put in a resolution, I was alderman, a hearing on uh, when they were privatizing daycare. And said, don't worry about it, we'll have lots of people there to testify. And uh, there was a real real lack of, of, it was a really, I don't know how to say this, the the proposal, this was um, when Daly was mayor, the proposal to privatize the, 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 uh, Head Start program in the schools was really a way to win over. It was a kind of a way to win over not-for-profits. He was taking it from the schools and giving it to not-for-profits, but it came out of the public sector into the quasi-public private mm-hmm. sector, and um, and that meant that there was going to be less less accountability, and um, and it wasn't sure what that would do to the resources, and it was really taking stuff out of the school out of the schools. So instead of making demands to improve the schools, we were losing you know, some of the population to do that, some of the strength to do that. And um, and it was a really important issue. So I said, okay, but it the point of doing it was to be able to educate people. And so the hearing was really important and having a lot of people there. And then having introduced it, it would have been important to pass it, at least mm-hmm. to give a message. No one showed up to the hearing. Mm-hmm. The person that asked me just, I don't know, that off on something else, someone I should have been able to count on. So at that point, I realized that, A, I can't count on anyone to do something unless I see it's being done, but B, how important having that sea to swim was, because we lost that terribly, and it turned out to be a hearing of 100 people coming and testifying against me for having even suggested they shouldn't be getting Head Start. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And there was no, you know, I can't have a conversation with everyone who's coming up doing, I mean, it it just wasn't going to work, and so there was no way even to get across why we were doing that. Right. Um, and it didn't get out of committee, so we didn't have a debate on the city council. So it's a, to me, from that point on, I even focused. I said, if you're not going to build the city, or if you're not going to do the organizing, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay focused on my priorities and fight that fight because the people are there making those arguments. Take us back to when you were an activist, you were an organizer in Uptown. You'd come from Wisconsin, and... And you were very uh, much aligned with and affiliated with the Black Panther Party. 
but you were organizing white folks in uptown. Why did you decide to run for office? And and what was it? What strategy was it a part of? So there were two <coughs> different periods of time when I ran for office. Right, I remember that. Yeah. Um, so okay, so in nineteen seventy three, Bobby Seale and, and Lane Brown ran in Oakland and um, for mayor and city council. Two leaders of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. And when they did that, they pulled back. They they had this uh, was they called it the building a base of operations in Oakland and they pulled Black Panther Party members from all over the country back to Oakland um, to be to, for those campaigns right. and then people came back here um, in nineteen so that and the conversation which is the important thing was about elections are another survival program survival pending revolution and the idea of the survival programs was that we needed we couldn't de- we couldn't depend on a racist government to provide uh, the the solutions to people's problems that we had to be able to well uh, we had to be able to um, to show to do that our, do it for ourselves so it wasn't a program of doing service to people or doing something for people it was a program of organizing people to be engaged in a process of addressing their own needs and solving their own problems and in the course of it showing what was possible and making the demand. So that's what all the survival programs were. So that was a definition mm. of, of electoral politics. And then in 1974, probably the end of 1973, Chacha Jimenez and the rest of the young lords who were underground in Wisconsin or Michigan, I'm not sure, came, I guess Michigan. Well, they were actually. underground. How would you know? Well, you I, find they told me after the fact. Yeah. Uh, they came back to Chicago. He came back to Chicago, dealt with most of his... Um, enough of his uh, legal issues so that he wasn't in jail and um, and proceeded to uh, uh, announce we were at the announcement that he was running for alderman of the 46th ward. They set up a headquarters in the northern part of Lakeview which at that point was about three quarters Puerto Rican and least and that was the southern part of the 46th ward. So we um, we were that was all of 1974. It was a year of two hours night sleeps and um, and that election was in February 75. Um, and Chacha did remarkably well. You know, but he did very well. And we won a bunch of precincts in Uptown and Lakeview. And then, um, so, so, and then Harold Washington, when he ran in 77, we said, okay, we coordinated the ward for him and ran his election up there and actually ran around with him all over the north side. And then um, in 1979, uh, in 1978, the alderman of the 46th ward resigned. We had resigned in 77, and a special election was called in 78, and the ward at that point was uh, Uptown, which was a bunch of uh, many, well, you'll see the description of the book, but essentially it's people who were not registered to vote and were pretty much invisible, surrounded, except for those who had ties to the machine, surrounded by 10,000 um, predominantly Jewish voters on the lakefront, and then a, a and high rises, and then a before they were condos or just beginning to be condos, and then there was a ring of single family homes, uh, which was middle class folks, and so it turned out. So we needed somebody who was Jewish. We needed somebody who had a bachelor's <laughs> degree, and you know, preferably a woman. So I was it. You were Jewish <laughs> with a bachelor's degree, damn. So uh, I really I remember the very first. Um, very first speech I had to make, it was at Truman College, and the podium was like over here where that chair is. And I'm walking to the podium, and I froze. I mean, I really was not, like, ready for this. <laughs> I was not a public speaker. I was pretty sure. I froze. And Slim Coleman came up behind me, put his hand right on my back, and pushed me. <laughs> <laughs> That's I said, an image. Oh, I like God, that image. No, it's yeah. true. And I'm like, oh, my God, now I actually have to do something. So I don't even know what I said. Um, I learned to speak after. Uh, so that was that election. So in 78, it was a special election in, like, April or May. I did not very well, but we learned a lot. And um, we kept running. We were doing lots of things, and they're all described in the book. This was one of the hardest chapters to write yeah. because it was so much happening at once. Um, I... Uh, in February, I came out ahead. I was I got forty something, forty eight percent of the vote or something, but not fifty percent plus one. So we had a runoff, and I lost the runoff by one hundred and fifty votes. Um, but we learned over the course of the next couple of years about how they stole about twenty five hundred votes because people came over to our side. 
And that is the reason I was able to win later. But, but that were, was the first one. But you were also embedded in a social movement. You were embedded in an organizing totally. strategy. It wasn't a separate event. No, no, it, it wasn't me. And it wasn't I mean, an it individual wasn't event. Me. Right. Yeah, this was... Um, I think the interesting thing about this, which is important, is that often when I've thought about this, I was very insecure about the whole thing, and I was insecure about becoming the alderman, which I didn't know what that meant at that point. We had done a lot of work about voter registration. We knew I had done this whole analysis, and we took all the people that were eligible to vote in the ward. We identified, you know, by age and where they were and how many people in every apartment and used all the demographics and um, figured out that, and then looked at who had voted, and figured out that literally 17% of the potential voter, voter population had elected the former alderman. Um, so, so we made a, and so we did a lot of voter registration, which we had actually started doing in 1973 as a res part of a campaign against um, police brutality and to establish community control. And the Black Panther Party had been working all through the beginning of 1973 to develop an ordinance for community control police, which I still have the copies of. Nice. And. Um, and, and we had a conference, they had a conference at UIC in June of that year, and the plan was as a launch, to launch uh, a campaign for community control. And so we were doing voter registration all through that, and, um, and we just kept doing it. So then we went to our churches, and then we kept doing it even for my stuff. And we would get into, you know, because it was a way, we needed support. One of the things that we were dealing with, you couldn't do anything without the machine right there behind you, so you had to be building support. And we were engaged in, we had proven that even though we had an uptown health clinic, we had about, we had at least 100 or 200 somewhere, I don't know if I have the number in the book, but a huge number of storefront clinics that were, you know, just, they were just welfare mills, um, that we weren't, people weren't getting health care. And one of the particular problems we faced, or people faced in the community, was black lung. There were a lot of uh, people there from Appalachia, but it wasn't the only problem. There was uh, people. There was constant problems with, with lead poisoning, with salmonella poisoning, um, with um, uh, with heart disease and and um, diabetes, and you know everything that we know. We our infant mortality rate in Uptown at the time was twenty five percent. It was crazy. Mm. So um, we were demanding. We wanted a clinic. And it was suggested to us by Quentin Young that he could work with us to do it. And we got Houghton, even though they were fighting to work with us, who was the head of the Health and, Health and Hospital Governing Commission. But we needed to be able to get resources. So we applied. I had to, so I did a study to prove that even though on appearances we had all this health care, we were actually a medically underserved area. And we proved it. They gave it to us. In mm. fact, it was the first community in the city that got designated as a critical manpower shortage area. So this is the same time we're demonstrating against the Board of Health for all their health policies. And we get this and they call me up and ask me if they can adopt my uh, my research. Nice. <laughs> I was like, sure. Nice. Um, anyway, so that was going on at the same time we were running the election. And, um, and, 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 and what we did constantly every time we had an event was a health fair to be able to prove, you know, we had people actually responding directly. And I can't remember why I started telling that you that story. Well, you know, one of the things I want to underline about what you're saying is that good organizing does involve mobilizing people. It involves real research. And one of the things I sometimes feel we need to double down on today is serious research, serious study, so that we're so that we know what we're talking about and it's not just a vague idea and that's something that you did with the health but you also you and others also did it with policing and it's interesting to me i reread recently the black panther party 10-point program written over 50 years ago and it's as relevant today mm -hmm. as it ever was and, and it's it, at the back of the book yeah and it, i know and it hits all these issues um directly and those were the issues that you were but mobilizing that, around. But that's because they really come from real people's lives. Yeah. So, yeah, we have to know all the stuff, like you say, but it all really, the foundation for that has to be the reality right. of people's lives. Right. And I think that that was really the key issue always. You were a housing organizer for a while, no? Uh, housing was a very big issue. piece of what we did. Yeah. And, and, and we're in a moment now where housing is, again, 
one of the critical it, issues we're facing. It's all, I think it's all, you know, it's, we have this whole discussion about crime, but we don't talk about public safety. Exactly. We don't talk about stable communities. We don't talk about what it takes for people to be able to thrive, really develop, and to grow, and to have the potential for all of, for all of us. I mean, at each stage right. of our lives, there are different opportunities, but especially for our youth. And, um, and, and for me, always... I mean, in Uptown, it was a no-brainer because there had been this whole, they, because the whole plan, it, the, the way in which Chicago did development in those days was so highlighted there, and yet people were still fighting so hard. So we had the city come in with a series of, of proposals for developments that were supposed to benefit the people who lived there, first the college, then the health center, the Uptown Health Center, and then this middle school that was originally Arise, now Uplift. And all of those were supposed to benefit the people who lived there, and to a, to a, to each of them, the effect was to they were put on the very place where the people they were supposed to serve live, so they were being forced out. So, but everyone in Uptown who was living in Uptown in 1972, almost to a person, had been displaced from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So once somebody, anyone was talking about let's fight displacement, they were like right on board. It wasn't like you had to yeah. explain to anybody yeah. what was going on. They knew it. And so it was the potential there to create such a diverse group of people to be engaged. They may not have even ever wanted to cross each other's paths or be in the same room with each other, but they got there because this was a fight they all agreed on. And, um, and, and, and always related to all these other aspects of our lives that destabilize our families and our households. So um, I think it was really, I think it, it's the core of it. You don't, you can't, you cannot deal with, I mean, to deal with crime means to, to make people victims and to blame the victim. And what we need to do is demand public, real public safety, which is stability in our communities and access to all of the resources that every single one of us needs to have a full life. Right. Yeah. In the city council, I, I have a zillion more questions, but I'm going to ask two more, and then I want to open it up. Helen and I agreed early that <laughs> everyone should be able to get into this conversation, so I'm using my monopoly power for just two more questions. And one is, as you're um, in your 24 years on city council, as an independent, fighting the machine often, help, growing out of this uptown organizing, what were some of the what were some of the victories that you feel most satisfied with and and what on your agenda never never got to where you wanted it well the first thing that never got to where i wanted it was the police yeah um th there's changes there were have to be some changes but for the most part every single change was illusionary as right. far as i could tell right and um, and and you know I, I was I actually was started really focusing uh, on one of my one of my discussions I was really focusing on um, on the because I focused on the budget so I got kind of get sometimes caught up on how much money we're spending and the amount is crazy and I made the point that um, if we had just taken all of the money that we've been paying out for civil cases for settlements, for, yeah. for settlements yeah. and for judgments yeah. the judgments are even worse yeah. Um, that because it's not just the judgments, but we've been paying outside attorneys. So between all of that, that we would never have to have raised the property tax in order to pay for the pensions because we'd have had more than not not even enough, not just enough money to pay for the pension deficit, but for other things. Schools. Right? Yeah. So uh, one number one, number two. But my my son made a point, which I think was very well taken. That that's really not the heart of the problem. It's just something that you know it's, it it reflects what the yeah, problem is yeah, yeah. and that the heart of the problem really is this question of public safety so mm. i think it's really important and we did not do a lot with that we've cre we we are now in a situation i think where it doesn't serve anyone you have and and so but but when it's in the public domain it's like it's it's a conflict it's a conflict between the people that are saying we do not want police misconduct and we want to be able to feel safe walking down our streets and not afraid of what the police are going to do and we don't want them doing stuff they don't know how to do so they're doing it poorly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or harming themselves and ourselves mm -hmm. we want a situation where or we or so that's one side uh, pitted i think in the in the public discussion especially from the media and the and the elected 
some of our elected officials, uh, mm-hmm. um, I, where the other side is, you know, look at look at what all this demonstrating is doing to the police and blaming those demonstrations on the poor morale in the police department. When obviously, if you've got a department and you have someone in charge of it, they ought to have some responsibility mm-hmm. for the morale of the people who work for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that you we have this false dichotomy that exists that we need to redefine and we need to win people over and understanding that that change in definition there's people out there fighting i'm not putting it on them mm-hmm. i don't think they're the risk i love what people i love that these things are being raised i love that more books are being written i love that there's more discussions mm-hmm. and we need to broaden all of those mm-hmm. in order to really create um a challenge or a demand that's really met so you know, we have this new structure that people are that's being put in place that's already receiving resistance, as I as far as I can tell from the administration, and um, and there are people running for office, but there weren't enough people that applied, um, and we don't, you know, so it's going to be a fight and a struggle, and it was already undermined in terms of some of, before it was passed in terms of some of the things that they can do. So it seems to me that organizing around, once we win something, we in the bigger sense, uh, those of us who support changes, whether we're right there in the middle of it at mm-hmm. the time or not, once we win changes, it's equally as important to make sure more and more people not only understand it, but are engaged. We broaden the umbrella mm-hmm. of people being engaged in making that change. And I'm fearful that that's not happening. So I think we need to do it. I mean, it's not too late, right? Uh, there may not be all those elections completely full and there may be split with people who, quote unquote, according to the news articles, support the police or support uh, community control but the or some kind of responsibility, but the um, accountability. But I think that all of this is just one step early on in a fight that's really very, very critical and important for us to be engaged in. You know, I, to, I feel so lucky to be in Chicago and I feel the last several years has been such an exciting time of organizing and activism from Black Lives Matter and the Let Us Breathe Collective to Undocumented and Unafraid. Yeah. But but I'm curious also if your engagement with the 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 progressive wing of the Democratic Party or the independents, I, I think that twenty five older people are stepping down right now is that not correct? quite that many i can't remember it's but, 15 I think. yeah i think it's 15 and, and but there could be tw- i mean you have to see what the elections happen with the other 10 but yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then the mayoral and there's three the, i think that just got reappointed this year so i see and the mayoral election is happening and there's a fairly substantial progressive wing in yeah. the city council right much more than you had certainly yeah well the, yeah intentionally progressive yeah. yeah i mean it was a different dynamic because we had the because we had the opposition to Harold that we had to deal with. That right. really represented the core issue of race. Right. Um, and so that was really important. But that's part of what we, you know, this is a process of change. Right. Right. And at the core of it, for me, is always the color line. Right. So um, the fact that the leadership that now exists is uh, able to be there built on what I think happened during the 80s. Yeah. That what happened, meaning fighting back. The, yes, I mean the yeah the whole well starting with Harold's election, right, and which then, kind of was what became um, what sort of the center point and the flashpoint right. uh, for the reactionaries and racists, but uh, you know sort of racist response that people right. had to make a choice about, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and 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 the demands that he was making on and the changes that he made the different way in which he practiced politics in Chicago showing that there was a different way to do things um, and that you could really respond and people to the needs of people and they didn't have to be invisible and right. people could be engaged themselves and all of that I think was a really important piece or part of the process of history we needed that to get to where we are say another word about that about what you mean when you say. He showed us a different way to practice politics in City Hall and in downtown. Well, Harold expressed it as, well, he said what I, I can't remember what I said here. I've said, had an earlier, I've had two things today. Don't worry. Uh, but, you know, Harold said when he first became mayor that um, his, one of his, two of his primary long-term goals were institutional racism and institutional corruption, eliminating them, and that it would take 20 years. So I did say that, you know, Matt was right. the whole thing about right. internalizing change. <clears throat> Um, but he was very focused. And the other thing he said was, 
Um, we are going to be, there's going to be a fair city, whether you like it or not, essentially. said something like, I'm going to bring fairness down on you whether you want it or not. Um, and then he proceeded, because he was such a good politician, in, um, in, in being able to get things done that proved that even in the wards where the aldermen were his opposition. Right. Um, and uh, do things that we had never done before. So he did stuff like getting resources through the first geo bond into every community. But he also, so I think it was still true when Byrne was, I'm pretty, I, a few things that as I recall. One is that on housing, Byrne had, uh, for every housing that was created that was affordable, the city spent three dollars to every private dollar. Ron, correct me if I'm wrong. When she was mayor, Jane um, Byrne, Jane Byrne, Harold yeah. turned that around, completely turned it upside down, so that under him, for every dollar the city spent, there were three dollars that we brought in from other governments, mostly from the federal government, I think, and uh, but I mean from private developers. Sorry, um, I mean it was pri it was other money, and it was a complete switch of right. the ratio. Um, Harold, uh, there were, had been, I think, well, the, the community development block grants and the, I forgot the name of it, the, the money that, JGPA, the money that was available for um, job training, all of the private, the money that came in block grants from the federal government when he took over. There was a total maybe, maybe, of somewhere between 25 and 50 organizations, not-for-profit organizations, that got access to those resources. Almost immediately, um, that, that ended up being hundreds and hundreds. I mean, his thing was, he said it to us, he said it to across the city to the people that have been engaged in his campaign, look, this is something new. We're taking over the government and we want to transform it. Where we, this, some of us have some experience here, but we need some help because we need to hear directly from you what's needed. You're all you guys that have been working for me that have organizations out there. We need you each to take on a project and do something to show how government can be better and work with one of our departments and tell me who you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. So we did the, what was called the Good Health Place with the Department of Health. But people did stuff like that all over the city. Mm -hmm. Now, the downside of that, I think, in my opinion, was that we all, did that as a priority over some of the other organizing we've been doing before, which left us a little open so that when he died, a lot of people weren't really prepared to yeah. keep doing the political work they'd done before. Yes. But the positive part of it was it really informed the government and the various different departments. But he did amazing stuff. He brought in technology into right. the sewer department. So that no, you know, so which was one of the strongest machine departments that was where majority of people had been hired because of their political work to do political work. So even if they were even if they were uh, had the background and had the knowledge to do the work, that wasn't their priority. They weren't necessarily going, you know, and in 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 the 46th ward they'd go to people's homes where the basements are flooding prior to Harold, and tell them that there wasn't anything they can do about it because the way the house was built was wrong, as opposed to looking at what was wrong with the sewer system. Um, so, so there were so many, those are just some examples. But he actually, every department head, I think, Jackie, you can correct me, but I think every single department head became automatically part of a speakers bureau. And all of a sudden, all over the city, there were, um, I forgot what we called them, but there were meetings everywhere about knowing your government. Right. And so all of a sudden, people started hearing about how government worked. It was right. huge. You know, we're we're coming up on a, a mayoral election. Um, and um, maybe say a word about where we are now in Chicago and what is to be done. Well, you know, one of the things that I recall when we were, when Harold was running, was that when one of the things he said when he talked about the budget was that we have to stop taxing people by taking money out of their back pocket. And he did change the way the budgets were done so that it was much more, I guess, transparent in the sense that you knew where the money was coming from up front. And, um, and it wasn't, you know, and, and, and a lot of the, the side, um, the extra fees and stuff were really, it was changed. Um, well, that's not, I mean, I think today it's, tough, it's really, it's a tough city to live in. Things yeah. are very expensive. We, this is built over time. It's not, yeah. I mean, Daly did some of it. Ron did a lot of it. They all did something of it. And, um, and, and, and it's certainly been going on. I mean, this latest parking, I mean, speed tickets. It's crazy what people have to spend to live in the city. Right. And, um, and it's just getting worse. So I think there has to be 
a real focus on addressing that, not just the regular old, same old, things are expensive, we can't help ourselves, we just have to do it. That, it, it, that always ends up just meaning we're always gonna be blamed. Mm. Um, you're asking for too much, that's the message. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to look at what's efficient and what isn't. That's why this whole discussion about the police is so important. Um, we have to look at where we're spending money and if that's the best and what it is that it's supposed to be accomplishing. And is that the best way for it to be accomplished? Mm -hmm. And we know for what is it, 15, 20 years now, we've been screaming at least 20 years that we instead, I mean, when we, the first salvo against mental health services being the responsibility of the city mm -hmm. was the closing of the Chicago, the CEATC, Chicago Addiction Treatment Center, which was so successful and so effective, and it was closed shortly after, so early 90s, and um, and that was the first salvo, and we really tried to stop it. Um, the aldermen that were still there who had still been part of the Washington coalition who hadn't fallen off, but we weren't successful, and now it's been downhill ever since, and, you know, it's crazy. What? Let me just give you one example why this is such a, why we even having this conversation. If you are in the city of Chicago and you attempt suicide and you end up in a hospital, someone takes you to the hospital, in every part of the city there is, I think, a not-for-profit, but there's some organization that does mental health that has the responsibility to come and visit you wherever you are. So they come to your home, once you've gone home, to make sure you're okay. That is a contract with either the state or the city. I honestly don't know who. But it's a contract and it happens and they do it. Now, that means that there are mental health workers that are not afraid to go to people's homes when mm -hmm. there's a crisis. They know mm -hmm. there's been a crisis, they go to the home. They're trained to do that. Um, why is that a big issue? Mm -hmm. Why aren't we doing that? Why do we think it has to be someone who's not trained, who has a gun in their pocket, to do that? Mm -hmm. Why aren't we saying, mm -hmm. let's ask the mental health service providers what it is they need and how they would organize mm -hmm. a response to mental health emergencies? And some of them will tell us, those will tell those of them who have been in situations where they think there may be danger will tell us what they think they need mm -hmm. and then we can figure that out mm -hmm. um, but instead to say we have to do it this way when almost every time we do it there is some kind of violence that occurs is a it makes no sense and then to say we're going to do it and then to be demonized for suggesting that there ought to be a change and labeled as being anti-police because you've done that is insane it's not that's just a way to make sure there's no change um, and that we leave the status quo the way it is. Is this question going to be on the agenda of the mayoral election? Is this going to be a top-level top issue? Well, I don't know. I mean, the last election, it wasn't. It wasn't. Well, mental right? health was, but not in this regard. Not, not related um, to the police. And when people talked about... I, I, so here's a... I think that this is a good example of where it's necessary to have a seat to swim in that there has to be a conversation that's not a polarized conversation, so it has to be broader than just the activists. But there, we, I mean, we need a campaign. I think we should really do a, a campaign in the papers and elsewhere and do whatever we can to have the conversation about what makes sense in terms of looking at when things are working and aren't working. Mm -hmm. Who needs to be involved in that conversation? What are ways that other people have done it? Um, this is off the topic of the police, but when I read that in Houston, they had they they had housed twenty five thousand homeless people. I'm like, why aren't we talking about that exactly. in Chicago? Exactly. So I'm sure that there are similar things like that all, everywhere. Well, you know, it's interesting when the activists went out to the neighborhood where they're gonna where Rahm Emanuel's proposed building the Cop Academy, and they canvassed and they had they had ten issues on a sheet, and they asked people if you had ninety five million dollars, <laughs> what, what what are your priorities? <laughs> no. The Cop Academy didn't make. At no, above ten, I mean that was the right. bottom of the agenda. Everybody wanted mental health, schools, parks, yeah. you know, a, a zillion other things. You need a nourishing environment in order for our children. Right. We don't need police in the schools. We need a nourishing environment, and we need, you know, we need to give the teachers the tools that they need, not just in a classroom, but the support, the moral support they exactly. need in the structure and way it works. We don't need multiple layers of bureaucracy. You know, we just need to get, yeah, somewhere. You and I agree. Uh, I want to open it up, and, and let's have a conversation. Yes. And please introduce yourself. Um, my name is Robin Charleston. Um, I work for the city briefly under Harold Washington. But uh, when you were talking about displacement, 
and uh, disruption of people's lives by displacement. It made me think about the um, breakup of the large public housing projects mm -hmm. and what's happened or hasn't happened to the people since then. And I wonder what you think, or just some of what you think, about what, what could have been done instead and what could have been done after and what, if anything, can still be done um, for the people that left and their kids and, and that sort of thing. Well, what's obvious from the census is that significant numbers of people have left the city. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that they've left to, um, I know a lot of, I know some people who've gone to Indiana and ended up in Section 8 housing that exists there. Um, I have no idea where everybody went. Um, I, I assume a lot of people went to the south suburbs also into communities that had already didn't have enough resources to begin with and haven't gotten any assistance. Right. Um, a lot went to communities in Chicago without any kind of backup or, or support and went into communities like, um, I mean, I know the, a lot of discussion with other aldermen at the time, like Chatham, where they went in and they moved into apartments this, the um, the second floor apartments, the second extra apartment, where the people who are living there now were elderly, not really prepared to be able to manage an apartment. They would just needed the extra income, so they rented out the apartment, and no resources in the immediate area for edu. You know, the schools were a little bit farther. There might have been a school, but some of those was closed down when Ron became mayor, um, and uh, but not enough parks and not enough, uh, not a not a process that help people be integrated into the communities they were going or that people in those communities could be part of the process of conversation about needs that now the community had that the you know it wasn't approached like we understand that people are coming out here because there were resources in public housing even if it was poorly done or theoretically and there was money for it so there was no attempt to create a relationship between that and a source of resources and a, an agreement even if you will with CHA to be able to make sure that people had what they needed that it would, wasn't disruptive to the community and, um, and it, I mean it's much more complicated it's a much longer conversation but I think that like everything else our perspective, I mean the perspective, not my perspective, but the overall perspective was it's a problem, let's just get it away, we don't have to think about it. And the housing is poor, so we'll just tear it down. And it's the same thing, I mean I start in the book, um, and I think it was in the introduction where I talk about in Uptown, you know, the, one of the early arguments that I consistently had was that people, I would complain about tearing housing down, and the response was, well, this housing is horrific. You've even said that. So what's so bad? And mm -hmm. what's so bad is that people are already destabilized, living in the best possible situation they can find, and now you're telling them they're going to take it away, and, and, and the only alternative is worse. So unless you create a better situation, you're not doing anything. You're, it's, it's, it's not real. You don't care. It's hypocritical. And, um, and I think that was the case here. So unless there's... I mean, there are people who will really disagree with me, and some of my friends who think that they've done, there's been a great deal done with CHA. I don't think the point was to maintain the number of good units that you had. The point was to make sure that everyone in the city of Chicago had access to decent, affordable housing, and I don't really care how you get there. And I say that as an elected official as well as an activist, and we just didn't do that. We didn't do it, and it was a huge struggle. We were able, I, I think, when I first became alderman, talking about, even when Harold was there, talking about affordable housing, that first summer when the developers did a whole campaign against me and went after me on affordable housing, most of my colleagues were terrified to talk to me about affordable housing and, um, and really pulled away. And Harold, you know, Harold and I talked about it, and he said, well, so what's up here, Helen, because you're really getting jammed. And I told him my perspective, and he said, great, we're going to do, we had, a, we had a plan. He said, we're going to do that, but we'll focus on it in January after the uh, election. I mean, after the budget's done, mm -hmm. we start the new year. I think that there was going to be a slight changes in who was doing what in the city government, and it was committed. Um, but uh, we had to get through that conversation. And I think that, therefore, there wasn't any kind of real will. He was he had a will, but there wasn't a will in the council. I had to work on that. And when he died, it would have been if he had lived because everybody would have gone, you know, behind him, would have followed him. When he died, the day he, the first council meeting we had after he died, they killed the proposal that I had on the table. Mm. Gratuitously. They didn't need to. They just didn't have to call it up for a vote. They killed it. 
so uh, when we finally got an affordable housing ordinance in the late 90s, that was a real victory from my point of view. It wasn't solving all the problems, and it meant that, but it meant we now finally had a political will, to, enough of a political will to get some support for some money to do some housing. But throughout the 90s, the commissioner, especially in the middle of the 90s, no, it was it was like she didn't think that you should do affordable housing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Kind of Susan just, just to follow up on that, right now I just want to make a footnote. There's this very interesting proposal to raise the transfer tax it's all, on yep. real estate transactions yep. in what, over a million dollars. Yep. And the city council, members of the city council under the direction of Lori Lightfoot, yep. stayed away from a meeting That's so right. that there couldn't be a quorum, so it couldn't even be considered in front of the council. That's right. Last night I got a phone call, I'm one of the few people in the city who still has a landline, for a, <laughs> that was a political <coughs> survey, which was really a tirade against the transfer tax. It's all how horrible it would be. So that's an interesting issue to watch as a barometer of how different forces are lining up on the question of creating a fund by taxing the rich right. to provide more services and housing for people who are So that's not new. No, but it's it not. got closer than it ever has before. <laughs> yeah. But you're absolutely right. You know, in nineteen ninety one or ninety I proposed um, that we get rid of, that we have a city income tax because of all the people that work, live out of the city and work in the city. And I showed how if we did that, we could eliminate the property tax, the city's portion of the property tax. We'd have enough money to put a huge amount into affordable housing, and we'd have enough money to start a real recycling program. I still have all the stuff on it. And the response, so Ed Burke had the best response, which was, I mean, coming from him, you'll get it, was you can't do that because no one believes that we'll actually, um, we can't, first of all, you can't do it because the state legislature has to approve it. But secondly, you can't do it, giving his argument for what he would tell them, I think, is that you can't do it because no one's going to believe you're really going to give up the property tax, so you can't get support for it. And I'm like... <laughs> Just because you won't. <laughs> I mean, you know, the point was elected officials always lie, and I'm like, yeah, like you. Um, but, uh, but that was, you know, for the, they don't want to make that change. Well, and of course, I didn't realize then how much money he made off of property tax. Yeah, you know? right. But that's the point. Everyone had their piece in it, but it had nothing to do with really serving the people or responding to people's needs. And we could have, if we had taken, the property tax is really regressive, right? It's not, it has nothing to do with what you earn. And there are people that come into the city every day that we spend a lot of money on. Um, all the streets. I mean, there's so much stuff we spend money on for them uh, in order to retain the infrastructure. So it makes sense. If you have a, a, a tax, and also part of the tax was to not start it until people were at that point, I think I, we were even talking about 20 grand, which is well over was well over the poverty level. If you don't start taxing people, you only tax people who really have more wealth. And you tax them with, because they're using stuff here by using that, it would have been huge and it would have been much more progressive and you wouldn't have had to worry about whether or not you could afford the development in your community, which would also have slowed down this incredible pressure on raising um, the taxes that people were paying. And it wouldn't have had any effect on the property value. So, you know, uh, I get, kind of gave it up. So I'm glad you raised that, Susan, because that was the one thing that kept being raised over the years for that. And there was never more than a half a dozen votes. So the fact that they got as close as they did, it indicates progress. And your point about paying attention is really important because the more we can grow some kind of support for that and demand to the alderman, we might be able to get something like that done. And it's huge. I was wearing my Tax the Rich baseball cap in the supermarket the other day and somebody said i really hate that hat, hat and i said what do you want to tax the poor they don't have any money you know it's like <laughs> what are people thinking it seems like such a moderate i think that people are thinking i might be rich someday <laughs> someday i'll be rich yes, yeah. right. yeah. yes yeah. sir is, is there any um your, your name oh sorry cory muldoon is there any connection between the work that you did in sds and the work that you were doing in uptown um and like yeah, I know that the timing might not be exactly right. Not exactly right, but she was in SDS too, and her brother was also. So, mm -hmm. so how did that movement impact your... The student movement, the anti-war movement. Well, I mean, clearly for me, the student movement, um, it's how I got involved in actual action. I mean, it wasn't like I wasn't thinking about stuff before or whatever, but um, it connected me to all of these other issues. It was really important. The other thing that I would, I would say to that is that 
you embodied this as well, but you were in the anti-war movement, you were an activist there, and you went to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And that movement was very, very much an internationalist movement. Mm -hmm. And I think you brought mm -hmm. your internationalist perspective into your work yeah, here totally. and into City Hall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in 1968, I um, so I, I, I in 1968, I went on a SDS trip, and I, I I heard a funny story about this, Bernadine. That um, so I went on a I wrote the so I'm gonna say what it is. I I, um, okay. I went on an SDS trip to to Cuba. It was 30. It was the goal. The idea was that there were 30 white students. It was actually one Puerto Rican student. But the rest of us are white students, middle class students, going to cha the, the the federal government, and you might know the details of this better. But the federal government, as I recall, had um, there had been five members, I think, of the leading members of the Black Panther Party from the East Coast and the West Coast that had gone were going to Cuba through Mexico. They had been stopped by one or another U.S. intelligence agency, um, taken, um, stopped, arrested incognito for a few days and then sent back to the opposite coast from which they came. which just whatever they could do to disrupt it. So SDS decided to, in your face, we're going to send a group and challenge you to do the same because they didn't. But uh, so we, there were 30 of us and we went through the same path. And um, on the trip, so that was a trip I was on, and all of what you just said, Bill, is true about consciousness and awareness. But on the trip was um, a guy who had been organizing in Uptown as part of JOIN, um, was, had been, um, uh, his mentor had been, um, what's his face, the guy from the People's Church, um, uh, Preston Bradley. And he, um, he, he, he got in, you know, he sort of inserted himself into the movement. And um, I believe, my, but what I heard, he was on the trip, and he later was, he was later, the guy that was Orbach's chief of staff, who was organizing Nazi, organizing, sort of young white people into a gang called the White Rebels, and bringing political education to them of the Nazis and the Klan. Um, and what, by then we had learned that he had been an agent. Yeah, but what I heard. Pro. Pro. He was. It was, it was Tom, a chapter. Right? Huh? Yeah, Tom yeah. Osher. Yeah. And so there's a story. All these stories. That part of the story is in the book. But um, what I learned recently was that Bernadine was supposed to be on that trip, and something came up, and you couldn't do it, and he was your replacement. <laughs> 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 so I think Klasky told me that recently. From heaven to hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we we are being signaled that we're at the end of an hour, and so. Um, oh, we didn't I do just, what we said. We we didn't do much what we said. We didn't take in a lot of. We yeah. didn't take in enough for <laughs> sure. We could stick around and talk, uh, but we're going to end the formal part. And um, I, I really want to end with one question, which is, we referenced the the latest iteration of the black, the centuries old black liberation movement. We referenced some of the great work going on in Chicago, but I think we also all feel the winds of fascism mm -hmm. and reaction and white supremacy blowing hard. And so, I'd just like you to say a word about this political moment and how you sort it out. How do you think about it? I think about it as acting defensively. Mm. necessarily acting defensively. Um, I started the book with the story about fascism and um, and I wrote the book out of frustration that there is the way in which the Democratic Party both the I, I started I, 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 there was a lot of conversation about writing the book since I was alderman you know all my people around me saying you have to write the book and I wasn't ready and in 19 I mean in 2016 I was reviewing, I was struggling with, well, I have all these photographs, maybe I'm going to do that. I went to, maybe I'll do a book about photographs. I spent four months in Cape Cod in the middle of winter, no one's anywhere around, in a little cottage that someone I had gone to high school with gave me for the winter to stay in, so, you know, somebody was there. And I just worked on these photos listening to um, the debate in New England about in the primary and every day getting more and more frustrated because it was clear that between uh, that between so both the Sawyer's the Sanders campaign camp and the Clinton camp were intent on destroying each other and that there was every day it was less likely there to be any kind of united front in the end that had any kind of passion to be able to defeat Trump who I was sure 
at least I was sure, was going to be the candidate. And mm-hmm. I was freaking out. And so I, so I said, I've got to do so. I need a voice. I was really frustrated of a voice. So it still took me a few years to start writing, but that was really the impetus. I think this is a really dangerous time. And I see too many, I see too many parallels, actually, to um, the 30s. And when I was writing the book and kept going back and reviewing what had actually happened here in the 30s, um, besides the obvious fact that came to me was that everything that was done, on the one hand, everything that was done um, it, by the WP and everything else was really an attempt to co-opt the, the left and, the, and revolutionary elements um, in a very dire economic situation in the country. But the other side of it was, was that even that almost didn't pass. That we all, I mean, every single thing that, that FDR did was re- received incredible opposition from, um, from the Republicans and almost everything included an element that was a Jim Crow law and in relationship to the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were limits on housing, limits on social security, limits on almost every one of the safety net items that limited um, access to black people in the South, to the very things that were being given to other poor people. So it was, um, so that terrified me because mm-hmm. it was so close and here we are and we're in the situation and then we got the president and then I had to write the book. So I think it's very serious. I think we need to act defensively. I mean, when people were telling me and all those commercials were coming about about Pritzker in the election and I was on various different radio shows, it was the only thing I could say. Mm. Um, Yeah, I get it. No one's perfect. And people have done things, or with Biden. I mean, there are things that I totally disagree. And things that they're doing, I think, are horrible. But this is a defensive moment to hold the line against clear fascism and the chance to do something about all these other things. You know, I, I want to thank you, Helen, for being here and for being you and for being a Chicago institution. Helen embodies the um, what freedom fighters and social justice organizers talk about all the time, which is the insider-outsider strategy. Really appreciate you. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Hey folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo, to my co-conspirators Light Eilee and Roxana Espos, and to Palace Shaw for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life more conspicuous. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.